Hello, and welcome to the Jacobite Podcast. Episode 24, Culloden. Charles had deployed his troops to try to stop Cumberland crossing the Spey, but both sides had taken pause in Inverness and Aberdeenshire respectively. During this time, however, not everyone was so restful. Lord George Murray had wanted to test a theory. George felt that one way forward may be to use his forces to carry out what we would recognise as guerrilla warfare in a campaign that became known as the Atoll Raids. Taking with him around 700 troops from his Atoll Brigade and the Macphersons, marching back towards his ancestral home of Blair Castle, he divided his men into 30 smaller detachments and marched over 30 miles, seizing both Castle Grant and the pass at Killicranky, which we last saw in 1689. The Jacobite forces split into their detachments and moved on to their appointed targets. From March 14th to 17th, 1746, around a dozen government militia posts were taken, amongst them Bunranach and, after a skirmish, Kenachan House, which acted as a sentry point to the Tumnal Bridge. The commander of government troops, Colin Campbell of Glenure, was away procuring supplies and returned to find, somewhat embarrassingly, over a dozen guard posts of his had been taken. But the main object, aside from holding the government sentry posts, was to seize the Murray ancestral home of Blair Castle. The castle itself was kept guard by Colonel Agnew of the Scots Fusiliers. A girl named Molly arrived from the local tavern, presenting Agnew with a letter from Lord George Murray, demanding the surrender of the castle. The reason Molly the bar girl went was that none of the other Jacobite men at McGlashan's tavern wanted to go because they felt Agnew's foul temper would have killed any of them on the spot and they wanted to avoid his possibly murderous intent. The soldiers garrisoned at the castle weren't too concerned, but Agnew hit the roof, and after a few choice words, Molly made her way to tell Lord George. The decision was made, and on March the 18th, the Jacobite army assembled outside Blair Castle and began to fire cannons at the castle walls, with a view to bringing them down around the government forces. Agnew found this somewhat ridiculous and amusing, asking, Is the loon clean daft, knocking down his ain brother's hoose? George's brother James was the current Duke of Atoll and supported the government of Hanover and had long since fled south. There's been argument made that George pursued this assault with such destructive fervour in order to prove to those who still doubted him that he was loyal to the Jacobite cause. His own brother, the Marquis of Tullibardine, wrote of such things being necessary for the cause, although he lamented the loss of the family portraits. The Jacobite cannons, however, weren't able to punch through Blair Castle's seven-foot-thick walls. The siege was eventually abandoned when Charles sent orders to return to Inverness. The relief forces arrived on the 2nd of April 1746 to find Jacobite forces had withdrawn the day before, leaving Agnew and his men approaching starvation when their relief finally arrived. The Atoll raids, in terms of achieving their objectives, managed to seize all of the sentry posts, but ultimately they failed to take Blair Castle, and they vacated the positions they took to head north. The raids may well have proved that a guerrilla-style hit-and-run campaign or a Scottish insurrection could have been useful to sap government troops and morale, but in all likelihood, Charles was never going to go with this. Securing territory was not his aim. Seizing the crown was. Also, this was still a generation whose military training contained a degree of chivalric conduct 
Armies met on battlefields. They fought till the light faded and retired to camp, unless you launched a surprise attack. It was all an academic debate by now anyway, as Murray men moved north to prepare for Cumberland's men, who prepared to cross the River Spey. Having rested near Aberdeen for around a month, Cumberland and his men were rested and drilled in manoeuvres. On April 7th, 1746, Cumberland ordered the men march from camp to the Spey to ford the river and move to engage the Jacobites. The setting out on April the 8th was cheered by news that a week earlier, government forces had seized a French ship named Le Prince Charles, which ran aground in Sutherland. Luden's men, with Captains Monroe and Mackay, took all the men prisoner and intercepted French arms and roughly £12,000 in cash to support Charles, which was no doubt to be a hefty dent in Jacobite finances. The Jacobites had left around 2,000 men to defend the Spey, with orders to repel the government, but somehow O'Sullivan got the idea, be it bad communication or bad intelligence, that Cumberland's force was somewhere close to 18,000 men strong. Now, Cumberland's army was actually nowhere near that. They were closer to 7,000, but this 18,000 number went through to officers on the ground who were either unwilling to throw good men to a meat grinder or completely overawed by the number that they were going to face. Besides which, the Jacobite Rapid Horse Infantry was low on horses and wouldn't be able to stop a force moving like that. And so it was that the Jacobite commander, Alexander MacDonald, expressed his consternation as he felt O'Sullivan had forced the Jacobites into retreat and gave up the spay when it was considered defensible. This might have been up for debate, but the argument didn't change the fact the Jacobites were in withdrawal again this time towards Elgin. Once Cumberland crossed the Spey and spent time camped at the former home of Lord John Drummond, his men bedded in fields using wheat, and when that ran out, they would use barley as bedding. On April the 13th, government forces reached Elgin, with a view to pushing west to Inverness, eventually reaching an area near the coastal town of Nairn. Basing themselves in and around Inverness, the Jacobites and their generals debated the next move. This was more focused to where and how to fight rather than whether to fight. Despite some questioning the logic of the battle to come, myself included, those involved, it was a matter of honour. They had sworn to defend their king and his prince, and they would do that. If the Jacobites were to even stand a chance of regaining the momentum, the army would have to take a stand against Cumberland and win. Given that they'd steamrolled Cope at Preston Pans and arguably got better of Hawley at Falkirk, this wasn't as unbelievable as could be thought. On April 14th, 1746, Charles was informed the government army had crossed the Spey and were on the move. In his account, Johnston says the news hit the war council like a thunderclap, bringing into sharp relief the threat the Jacobites now faced. Charles dined that evening at Culloden House, and the men were camped on the grasslands in the area, ready to face Cumberland and his men. The important thing to the army officers was where to fight. This began a marked disagreement between Lord George Murray and John Sullivan. Both men had strong opinions on why their position was the superior one, and even stronger opinions as to why the other choice was rubbish. Either they were too close to the government lines, and they didn't facilitate a Highland charge, like Murray's first choice, heavily forested, like his second choice, or the land being increasingly sodden and acting as an impediment to any movement in Sullivan's. Murray later complained that interference behind the scenes from the Prince's staff resulted in Murray's picks being rejected, but the choices Murray made weren't great for engaging an enemy at all, 
so he can't be entirely faultless at this point. Speaking of the enemy, Cumberland had set up his camp in Nairn along the coast. He wrote correspondence to Newcastle and to London and received intelligence reports. According to those reports, Charles was in Inverness and Jacobite forces had advanced a mile from the city towards them. Cumberland was somewhat taken aback by that news. The rebels had fewer men, less artillery, even fewer cavalry, and unbeknownst to the Jacobites, Royal Navy ships were coming to move up the Moray Firth with a view to position themselves outside Inverness. These Jacobites didn't seriously mean to fight, did they? I mean, on top of this, Cumberland was also extremely fed up with being there, in Scotland, having to contend with a bunch of ragtag rebels. He would rather have been in France, smashing King Louis's troops to pieces. In his letters to Newcastle, Cumberland even moans about this situation. It's not of his choosing, and he would double his efforts to settle it divisively to exact the highest level of vengeance onto the Jacobites, and Prince Charles in particular, in keeping him from Flanders' fields. In happier news for government forces, the Duke of Cumberland celebrated his 25th birthday on the 15th of April 1746. The Royal Navy ships kept his men constantly supplied, so he had food and drink to spare for a party. Each battalion was given around four gallons of brandy to toast Cumberland's health. The men relaxed, drank, ate cheese and biscuits. They weren't going to get rowdy drunk. Cumberland didn't want them affecting discipline, but the men appreciated the nice gesture. Little did they know, however. A few miles down the road, the Jacobite army was planning a master stroke that could see the British government forces beaten just as hard, if not worse, than General Cope at the Battle of Prestonpans. Lord George Murray hadn't necessarily recovered from the argument of the location of the engagement of the battle, but Murray had spotted an opportunity. If he could avoid detection, there was a good chance the Jacobite force could sneak right up to the boundary of Cumberland's camp and launch a devastating surprise attack on government forces. He proposed this to the army council, who saw the potential of such an attack, and so it was at seven in the evening on the same day that Cumberland was marking his birthday, April 15th, the Jacobites marched in two columns under Lord George Murray and the Duke of Perth, who was supported by Lord John Drummond. Leaving their fires and camp burning to give the impression they were still there, the aim was to march 12 miles to Nairn and launch their surprise strike. Charles was said by O'Sullivan to be ecstatic, going so far as to throw his arms round the neck of Murray, hugging the temperamental general, and declaring his action alone would crown Murray's achievements and the Jacobites in general, smashing the government force and establishing that the Jacobites were here to stay. In Murray's account, he concurs Charles hugged him and stayed chatting for a while, George stayed silent, until Charles took his leave, making his way to the French troops at the back of the column. Now on paper, this attack was an amazing coup. It would have been a strategic tactical move that could have changed the entire state of the battle in Scotland. The only problem was, you're marching a great number of men across a wet and cold boggy marsh. It's a complicated and unpleasant affair, even worse at night, and it didn't take long for the wheels to fall off the plan. George Murray's column arrived at a rendezvous point roughly two miles from Cumberland's camp. It was said in several accounts the Jacobites could hear the sentries of government forces shouting to each other. Murray was in position, ready to strike, but he was an hour behind schedule, there was no sign of the second column. Murray must have been wondering what the hell happened. Sadly, later on it transpired the second column had got lost and spread out far too far across the moor, becoming disorientated. Charles sent messengers up the line, desperate to try and locate Murray. Other soldiers either took the opportunity to get some desperately needed sleep, find shelter, 
or go back to camp or a nearby place to find some food and warmth. By the break of dawn, Lord George assessed that morning had come. Jacobite forces had lost the initiative and the element of surprise. Accounts vary on these details, Lord Elko saying it was Cameron of Lochiel that approached Murray and advised the Jacobite force here would be cut off, and that the men were tired and exhausted, and they would be against a rested, ready government force. O'Sullivan lays the blame firmly at Murray's door, as well as the Duke of Perth, acting without the orders of the prince, leading an attack to a base, and then turning tail and acting in cowardice. Now, O'Sullivan's a particularly partisan source here, and is quite keen to exonerate his own conduct and heap his blame on Murray, but he does hold true in his assessment the attack was the best chance to seize a victory. Some people accuse Murray of foundering in his loyalties at this point, but I don't see it like that. I think it was an honestly planned manoeuvre, but the execution was botched and Murray tried to salvage the best of what had become a disastrous situation. Whoever's account you believe, the result was the same. The Jacobites came back to camp demoralised, tired and hungry. Not to mention soaked through in rain and boggy marsh. They'd lost their best hope of a victory. Their only option now was to stand and fight in the morning. Charles was said to be beside himself with anger and emotion. Having pleaded and conjoled, raging beyond belief at the officers, he realised he was powerless to stop what was happening. He ordered a retreat and stomped back to Culloden House, where he sat and glared in sullen quiet as the officers all just stared at each other. Trying to think uh, strategically, the officers pleaded with Charles to allow the men to withdraw to Inverness or cross the Nairn River, allowing Jacobite ranks to rest and be ready to offer any resistance they could. But Charles would not be swayed. Be it his quest for the crown, or believing any move backwards with an omission of defeat or cowardice, Charles was determined the army would fight at Culloden. Even in treaty from the Marquis de Guille, the French ambassadors of the Jacobite court wouldn't shake him. De Guille was said to have wrapped himself round Charles's knees, sobbing and begging for him to reconsider, but to no avail. De Guille left Culloden for Inverness, making sure to search his room for any papers to destroy to keep from Cumberland's hands. The men of Jacobite command settled in for sleep, with their soldiers camping all around, some sleeping covered in their plaids under the bare sky. But the rest was short-lived as some scouts on horseback arrived and relayed the information that Cumberland's army was on the move. Prince Charles had barely been asleep two hours, and Johnston said he'd barely put one leg under the blanket when news made it through the ranks. Prince Charles and his officers filed off orders for the pipers and drummers to play, and for the officers to rally their men and get them on the march to face government forces. Many of the Jacobite force had gone in search of food in Inverness. Others, still exhausted, wet, cold and hungry, hauled themselves up and began the march to Dromossy Moor. It was here, on April 17th, 1746, that Prince Charles Edward Stuart and his Jacobite army and the government force led by Prince William Augustus, the Duke of Cumberland, stood across to face each other down and settle this fight for the British crown. As the troops lined up, the Jacobites stood with their right flank against a line of walled enclosures. The Jacobites were hoping this would deter cavalry charges. They were also not going to be able to charge across what appeared to be a quite boggy marsh between the two sides. But all was not well on the Jacobite side. Despite this new battleground not being the choice of O'Sullivan or Murray, Lord George found things to dislike and ways that O'Sullivan messed up to clear his name later on. 
O'Sullivan blamed the ground and the abysmal night raid. Elko blamed a bit of everything, including Prince Charles's increasing defeatism and lack of command. There was also the issue of the right flank. You see, as mentioned in a previous episode, the right flank of the king, in Scotland at least, had traditionally been occupied by the clan MacDonald and its men. At Culloden, the position in question was at the start forming up, taken by Lord George Murray and his Atoll regiment. The MacDonalds were very dismayed by this, but I think the accusations later levelled at them were unfair, and we'll discuss that in a moment. Nonetheless, this would lower MacDonald's spirits. The handful of cannon the Jacobites had were evenly distributed in the flanks and the centre. Prince Charles riding amongst his men, they formed ranks and readied their muskets. Charles was said to have asked a man to hand him his sword, and remarked to the cheering crowd he had no doubt this blade would remove many government troops' heads and arms. Charles finished by spurring on his men with the words, Go on, my lads, the day will be ours, and we'll want for nothing after. The men at the front could see a steady red wave. Cumberland's troops were arriving. The government troops had set off from Nairn at around four or five in the morning. Cumberland formed his men two or three lines deep, with mounted dragoons to his left. Behind his infantry were a few cohorn mortars, ready to rain shells on Jacobite forces. The government men who managed to get to the position before the Jacobites had picked their optimum fighting position, which meant that the Jacobites were out of line across a wet, sodden bog. Hawley's Dragoons and Campbell's Argyle Regiment began to move through the walled enclosures on the Jacobite right flank and get ready to cause a major problem for Charles's men. Cumberland addressed his troops. Gentlemen and fellow soldiers, I have but little time to address myself to you, but I think it proper to acquaint you that you are instantly to engage in the defence of your king and country, your religion, your liberties and properties, and through the justice of your cause, I make no doubt of leading you to certain victory. Stand but firm, and your enemies will soon fly before you. But if there be any amongst you, who through timidity are diffident of their courage or behaviour, which I have not the least reason to suspect, or any other, who through conscience or inclination cannot be zealous or alert in performing their duty, it is my desire that all such would immediately retire, and I further declare they shall have my pardon for so doing. For I believe much rather at the head of a thousand brave and resolute men than ten thousand amongst whom there are some by cowardice or misbehaviour may dispirit or disorder the troops and bring dishonour and disgrace on the army under my command. It was clear. Cumberland was ready to fight, and fight hard. Whilst reports of troop numbers are varied, most sources agree that Cumberland had the numerical advantage in men, with the National Trust for Scotland going with a figure of around 7,500 government troops and 5,500 Jacobites. The accounts over the progress of the battle are varied, but it's generally agreed the battle commenced at 1pm. At this time, artillery on both sides began their barrage, it's a point of debate who opened fire first, with some claiming Cumberland moved his artillery to 400 metres range. If you visit today, that would be somewhere in the line with the landmark on the battlefield known as the Well of the Dead. The others claim the Jacobites opened fire on an officer Cumberland sent to reconnoitre Jacobite lines, but whichever was correct, the battle had now started in earnest, and became very, very real for some people who brought a picnic to watch the battle play out, when one of the cannons landed a ball straight into their lunch. It was clear 
that government troops' artillery had the advantage. Their mortars could rain down on a much greater distance on Jacobite forces, and they remained out of range of the much smaller Jacobite cannons. Their accuracy was somewhat, if you'll excuse the pun, hit or miss, with some shots sailing over the heads of the prince's men, while others devastated the waiting military. But though an unintended consequence, the government cannon managed to destroy the Jacobite royal standard, and it may have inadvertently killed some of the prince's couriers, including Lachlan McLaughlin, the messenger en route with orders to advance. This lack of communications left the men at the front of the Jacobite lines forced to take the brunt of the assault, unable to move. The Jacobites tried to return fire, but their lack of experience and training meant their shots were of minimal use. The Jacobite lines spread out in an attempt to avoid cannons, and to plug the gaps, John Roy Stewart and his men surged forward, plugging the gap, but depleting any reserves Charles might have had. This onslaught was claimed by the Jacobites to be withstood for around 30 to 45 minutes. Cumberland claimed it was only around 9 or 10 minutes, with roughly 30 shots fired by government forces, but it had the desired effect of causing absolute chaos in the Jacobite ranks. Unable to communicate with the rest of the line and unwilling to withstand government cannonade any longer, Lord George Murray started to order his general advance. The Atoll Regiment and the rest of the Jacobite right flank began to advance, curving to the right to avoid a boggier part of the moor. It allowed them to advance to government lines, but that curvature meant that the line of Jacobite forces behind them were unable to provide musket fire without the risk of shooting their own men. As the Jacobites advanced, government artillery changed from cannonballs to grape shot and canister rounds. These were specifically intended to fire rounds that targeted people, firing musket balls and small cannon shot across advancing infantry. It was into this hail of shrapnel and smoke the Jacobites charged at government lines. Many men were cut down in this. Cameron of Lochiel had both ankles smashed by shot and was dragged from the battlefield, carried by two of his clansmen. Alexander McGillagray of Dumglass, leader of Colonel Anne McIntosh's regiment, lost his life in this advance as the Jacobites ground painfully towards government lines. On the left flank they fared little better. There were later recriminations from some, as well as a lingering belief from urban legend that the Macdonalds had dithered or refused to advance due to Murray taking their traditional position in the order of battle. This is a most unfair charge, and one most historians would probably agree is false. The Macdonald flank was separated by an even boggier stretch of marsh than Murray's. The Macdonalds tried to cross, not in tandem with Murray and the Atoll men, they were unable to coordinate and they were further forward than the Macdonalds. James Johnston was with the Macdonald lines, and he recounted how many men were shot down around him. Macdonald men would surge forward, fire their pistols, and try and goad the government to engage, but the Redcoats continued to fire in lines, and gradually forced a Macdonald retreat. In this struggle, Macdonald of Keppoch was hit in the arm and the chest, fatally wounded and dragged away dying from the field. Johnston later noted that the Irish PKs on the Jacobite left, provided vital cover fire as the Macdonalds broke and fled. The Atoll men fared little better on the right. Having managed to push towards government front lines, they slammed forward with hand-to-hand fighting. Cumberland had Barrel and Monroe stationed here, and Barrel's regiment took the brunt of the assault. So badly, his first line of infantry actually broke, but when the Jacobites hit the second line of infantry, they found themselves facing muskets at their front and sides, 
and men with bayonets fixed to their flanks. Much was made later of Cumberland's practice bayonet drill to counter the Highland charge, which hinged on troops aiming to the man on their right instead of the man in front of them. Now, it's not quite known how effective it was in the battle, but it probably gave the government men some confidence, and they surrounded the Jacobites and were said to have killed nearly 700 in a matter of minutes. But if the right flank thought an orderly retreat was going to happen, they were to be sorely disappointed. During the preparations, Cumberland's dragoons and the Argyle Regiment made their way to the flank of the Jacobites along the Colwiniac enclosure. The Argyle militia were there to clear stones so the dragoons could ride around the Jacobite forces. At around this time, the Atoll men were beginning to flee, and the Campbells began to fire on the retreating men as they passed. The only saving grace in this for Charles was the conduct of the Royal Ecossais, Scotsmen who fought for France, and stood their ground, shooting at the Campbells and covering the Jacobite retreat, which was by now in full flow. There are several musket ball shots found that show they were clearly laying down a withering amount of fire towards this direction, taking quite a few Campbells with them. As Redcoats moved across the field, smelling blood in the water and dispatching wounded Jacobites, Charles was in a mix of disbelief, dismay and dejection. There are reports Charles was trying to rally men for a new assault, even going so far as to declare he did not wish to leave the field alive. But O'Sullivan, seeing the damage and the battle being lost, approached the prince's bodyguard and urged them to run him from the field to perceived safety. Charles had initially refused, but in a clear realisation of the possibility of being attacked and killed on the field, or arguably worse, captured, imprisoned and executed by the Hanoverians, Charles fled with his men. Later accounts have Lord Elko shout at the prince, who fled without encouragement, There you go for a damned cowardly Italian. Despite it being a great line, there's no evidence of it ever being definitive about whether he said it, and some people say that Charles was ushered away rather than running of his own accord. What is indisputable is the result of Culloden and how fatal it was to the Jacobite cause. Charles had tried one big gamble to win whilst on the back foot. What had happened in truth was a rout which now started to turn into a complete massacre. Despite the Atoll men retreating to Culloden House, others fleeing faced the full wrath of Cumberland's forces. The cavalry were let fully off the leash. Horsemen chased retreating Jacobites to Inverness, cutting them down where they stood. Cumberland reported the killing went on for three miles around the battlefield. The atrocity continued all the way into Inverness, and soldiers did not often differentiate between soldiers and civilians. This was in the days long before the Geneva Convention. The only people on the battlefield spared were those with commissions in the French army, namely the Irish PKs and the Royal Ecossais. For the civilians and Jacobites, there was no such kindness or formality. They were rebels. The government forces stripped Jacobite corpses, killed women and children, and subjected civilians to theft, summary execution and horrendous sexual assault. When Lord George Sackville's carriage was raided by Highland robbers, the government forces entered the next village to start their reprisals. They rounded up all the women, and while the men were forced to watch, raped every single one, and then took these poor women and made them watch as their own men were shot and bayoneted to death. In Inverness, wounded Jacobite prisoners were taken from confinement in the church, and led out one by one to be shot, some wounded men propped up against gravestones for their firing post. 
three dozen gibbets were lined in the streets and used to hang the bodies of government men who'd fought for Charles. The officers later justified these atrocities in ways both obscene and devious. The obscene goes to General Bland, who defended sexual assault and rape by saying men were entitled to their sweets after the fury of war. The devious comes from the army later publishing a letter they found from Lord George Murray stating that the Jacobites were to give no quarter to Cumberland's forces under any account, though later analysts have believed this to be a fairly crude forgery. Besides trying to justify two wrongs making a right, something that most of our parents have told us is a bad idea, the actions of Charles's troops humiliated the British. This was pure and vicious vengeance. There were some on the government side, of course, who were horrified by reprisals against the Scottish populace and Jacobites. One sailor escorting soldiers to the Isle of Canna warned villagers of the soldiers' intentions, allowing their women to flee to the hills. The former provost of Inverness, John Hossack, protested and pleaded with General Hawley and his men for some measure of mercy and humanity for the prisoners. He was rewarded for his efforts by one of Hawley's officers, kicking him down the stairs and throwing him into the street. Another man who tried for mercy in vain was the President of the Court of Session, Duncan Forbes. Forbes was never a Jacobite sympathiser. He'd had his house commandeered and ransacked by them. Charles had eaten dinner there before Culloden. He was, however, a noble man, and he had tried to use all of his influence and any rallying Holland forces he could to curtail the Jacobites. He was loyal to the Hanoverians. But even he was horrified at the level of violence and brutality meted out by government forces. He pleaded with the Duke of Cumberland to rein his troops in, even after Forbes' own nephew, Malcolm, had been executed for fighting with them. This incident provoked a brawl amongst government forces, as Scottish troops took issue with anti-Scottish statements made by an English officer who stabbed Malcolm's corpse as it was hanging in one of the gibbets Cumberland had ordered to be put in Inverness. Cumberland himself had had to come from his lodgings in Church Street to come and quell the disturbance and prevent any further riot. But despite Forbes' demonstrated loyalty to Hanover, Forbes's pleas fell on deaf ears. It was reported Cumberland scoffed contemptuously to Hawley of that old woman who spoke to me of humanity and also had tried to appeal to the rule of law, saying, by God, I'll make a brigade give laws. Forbes had no power to influence those in charge anymore. He never really recovered from this. He passed away in December 1747. Some said of a broken heart. To my mind, Forbes' story was a tragedy. He was well-liked, was respected, even by his adversaries. Forbes' only crime, in my mind, was avoiding the destruction of his country to satisfy a thirst for vengeance and a desire to crush rebellious spirit left in a region. Culloden House was left in a state of disrepair. The family was never adequately compensated by the Hanoverians for their property. It took years for the Forbeses of Culloden to recover. The rebuilt house today is now a luxury hotel. Forbes himself has laid to rest at Greyfriars Kirkyard in Edinburgh. As the Jacobite rank and file suffered under Cumberland's reprisals, the fact that so many civilians died too probably helped the Duke receive his sobriquet from the Scottish people, Butcher Cumberland, and naming the former ragweed after him Stinking Billy, at least according to legend. The Jacobite officers, however, attempted to flee 
or organised a fight back. Lord Simon Fraser of Lovett had been at Gorthuk House when he heard of the loss of Culloden. Briefly meeting Charles in his flight, Simon Fraser had the mind to flee too. He hid in the highlands, but eventually the old fox was finally caught, hiding within a tree trunk, his legs sticking out of the bottom. He was dragged by the troops to London for trial with many others. The surviving Jacobite army and Lord George Murray met at Rhythm Barracks. The troops had felt the battle was lost, but were ready to counter-attack. James Johnston, Lord Ogilvy, Lord John Drummond and several thousand had gathered. Murray had written to Prince Charles that day after Culloden in terms that were blunt, uncompromising and brutal. He blamed O'Sullivan for all of the tactics, John Hay for the lack of supplies and even Charles himself for not waiting until France committed actual forces to carry out an invasion. Either this was Murray continuing his self-preserving arrogant conduct or just dropping all deference and giving Charles the unvarnished truth with both barrels. Nonetheless, he was a loyal Jacobite, and he sent word to Charles that he and the remnants of the army were ready to receive orders and coordinate a counter-attack. Two days later, on April 20th, 1746, Murray's messenger would return with the answer, Let every man seek his safety in the best way he can. To the assembled men, this was met with disbelief, and anger, and finally despair. As the full realisation sank in, it was now truly over. Charles had left them to their own fate, but Charles maintained it was best to return to France and lobby hard for an ironclad commitment of troops and, rather than using the Jacobites as they'd done to further French interests, push harder for a fully supported Scottish Stuart restoration. The fact that there were also very few supplies in Riven didn't exactly fill Charles with confidence that the army was going to be able to mount anything effective and so felt it best to go back for even more supplies to France. Charles planned to escape across the islands and hide till it was safe to get a ship back to France. Others made their way to hiding places of their own and prayed. They may not have known it, but this was the last campaign of the 1745 Rising and the Jacobite forces in total. Charles had gone all in, and it had cost him big. He lost everything. The loss fatally wounded the campaign, and left Scotland in a state of devastation. Now, most narratives would end here, with Charles sailing off to the islands, over the sea to Skye, and into the books of history. But dear listener, this is the Jacobite podcast. This story does not have a happy ending for the House of Stuart, and I promised you we would be here to the bitter end. Next time will be our last episode, but it will take us from 1746 to 1807 and beyond in what will be called the Twilight of the Jacobites.